Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. From growing up on a tobacco plantation to becoming the Commissioner of the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, Katerina Carroll knows what hard work and resilience is all about. After starting a social work degree, Katerina joined the police force and found herself moving up through the ranks to become the Assistant Commissioner with the Queensland Police Service before moving on to the role of Commissioner with the Fireys. Katerina is someone who shares openly about the role of leadership and the importance of creating a path for women to move into senior leadership roles. We unpack the transformational change that is required in workplaces, why the cornerstone of workplace engagement is truly knowing your people, and that having doubts and fears is actually not a bad thing. In fact, it can be the very thing that helps you to drop your ego and ask for help. Commissioner Carroll has been recognised as the National Telstra Business Women's Award for Government and Academia and on the Westpac 100 Women of Influence list. We chatted about the importance of pausing and recognising the work that you are doing while still getting excited about what's next. If you are in a leadership role or aspiring to be in one, then you won't want to miss this insightful conversation with Commissioner Katerina Carroll. Katerina, welcome to the studio. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's such a delight to to spend some time with you and, and really I'm, I want to dive into not only the role that you perform but some of the leadership, uh, I guess, challenges that you face along the way. But I'd love to start a little bit with your background. How has the background and your upbringing informed or contributed to the work that you do now? You know, I probably didn't put a lot of thought into this until recently but the more I think about it, I think it's a part of who you are and it really does set you up um, in life in, in different ways. And I touched on it before. I do come from a Croatian a background. My parents are Croatian immigrants, even though I was born here, but I was raised on a tobacco farm, you know, driving cars, trucks, motorbikes at a very young age, you know, 10, 11 years old, uh, hoeing the paddock and the fields in, even at that age and working physically hard all our lives. And that's a wonderful thing, really, because it's set up for an amazing work ethic. And I always remember coming home, I'm sure mum and dad planted tobacco, just, you know, you know, in those seasons, the seasons always coincided with holidays. So when we came home, I was either you know on the tractor or in the field. And we were a very close family group. And obviously, Croatian was my first language. Uh, I, I think from a very young age, we became very resilient. I look now, when I look back, and I used to listen to the, some of the conversations that my parents had when the rain would start and, you know, the tobacco crop were about to lose it. And they used to talk about what do we do for income this year? And I'm thinking, wow, that was a tough gig. And I was listening to that as a young kid but it made us kids work even harder to get the crop in before the rains came. So I think that has an extraordinary impact on your work ethic, on being resilient and knowing how to do it tough in life very early. I imagine you could see directly the effort that you were putting in to the impact it had on your family and then if it wasn't there, 
that was going to have a bigger impact on yeah, your family. Yeah, and, you know, my brothers and I, I used to talk about those conversations and the next day we'd get up even early and say, quick, let's get the tobacco in because we knew the rain was coming. So the more we got in today, you know, the better it was down the track. So it has to have an impact. And I think it drives um, you knowing that if you work hard and smart, it will have, you know, better outcomes. But I think about resilience. My God, those people on the land, you know, back then, how resilient they had to be to survive. And even now, when you look at people on the land, how resilient they have to be. When you think about your parents, and it sounds like they obviously, they worked really hard and had you involved, even in your holidays, (laughs) you weren't allowed to have those off. When you think about your mum and your dad, did one of those have more of an influence on you and your, your character? I think both in very different ways. You know, um, Dad was the typical Croatian bloke out in the fields working hard. Mum was um, used to get everything ready for the kids, the workers. We used to have 20, 30 workers at the same time, but at the same time in the field. So her day would start at 4 and finish at 10pm and this, you know, was a cycle particularly in the season. So whichever way you looked at it, um, both in different ways, but probably being a woman and looking at a very independent woman who worked hard, uh, probably a little bit more so towards mum. But I've got to say, we did have some fun throughout the holidays and (laughs) we were all rewarded before we went to university and off to work. You know, dad bought us a secondhand car or whatever. So it was good stories at the end of that as well. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't all hard work. It wasn't wasn't all hard work. Resilience and play. (laughs) Did you have any sense growing up what what your parents uh, maybe wanted for you? I think they... Obviously, all parents want you to succeed. They were mortified when I joined the police. And then three years... Why was that? Why were they mortified? uh, And three years later, my brother joined. And the reason why they were mortified, uh, they escaped, uh, obviously, from the former Yugoslavia into a refugee camp in Germany and immigrated to Australia. So they came from a really tough environment, Uh, quite poor, um, communist country without free speech allowed to a lot of its people. So when police had a very different meaning to them from where they came from. So when they heard that um, Katerina and Brother John wanted to join the police, I thought, oh my goodness me. But they were quickly educated to find out, you know, what a wonderful uh, policing environment uh, we were going into. So I think always wanting us uh, to do well in life, always to work hard and Uh, Being from that background, a sense of family, um, the family unit is extraordinarily important and that we've maintained throughout our life. With that in mind, how did that conversation go? Saying, Mum, Dad, I'm going to go and join the police force. Well, I did like a social work course initially at university, James Cook, because I wasn't old enough to join. So I thought I'd leave the conversation (laughs) until I actually got in. And when I got in, I think it was oh, my God, but you went to university to do social work and now you, what, want to join the police? (laughs) But when I joined and my dad drove me from Inner Hot Springs to Brisbane to the academy, which was some 2,000 kilometres away, it was a good time to have a discussion about why I wanted to join and I had two very good friends whose fathers were community police officers in small towns, country towns in Queensland. And I think mum and dad could easily see... Uh, what a noble and very effective uh, role it was in society. So we got over the humps pretty quickly and I think they're proud of 
both of us. Nothing that a 2,000-kilometre drive can't, <laughs> can't sort out. Especially with the flat tyre or two on the way, yes. <laughs> what was it for you that, that was behind that decision to apply to be part of the police force? So at boarding school, I went to boarding school for five years and in that boarding school I had two very good friends and both fathers were police officers in small country towns. One was Ravensdale, one was Mount Surprise and I used to spend, you know, a lot of time with these girls in these very small communities and I used to watch the interaction with that police officer and those people in that town. It's a very different relationship to large, you know, uh, cities and it was a wonderful interaction. And I think in a way they took care of each other, the community of the police and, you know, and the vice versa. And I thought, wow, I like that. I could really do that. And interestingly, when I joined policing, I never went to, back to a small country town. Uh, policing has this amazing array of occupations and I did everything but that, I think. Did you find that, that sense of contribution to a community? Because obviously that was what, you know, was the appeal and the attraction. Sometimes when you do a job, it's not always exactly what you think it is going to be. So did you still find that that sense of, um, I guess, that initial sense of supporting a community that, that pulled you towards that career? I think when I joined policing, you know, I joined in Brisbane and I went to squads such as the old licensing branch, the drug squad, the covert unit, um, the criminal investigation branch. So some of those areas didn't have connectivity with community like I had originally imagined. However, as I got older and more senior, and particularly, you know, when I went back to places like far north Queensland and Cairns, and I started taking part in those roles again that connected with other agencies and other, um, and with community members, from about middle management upwards, it was really obvious to me that policing is such a connection to community and such a connection to what's happening um, sociologically, economically, you name it. They pay a key role in people's lives and can have extraordinarily positive impacts uh, to wh whoever you deal with in community as a police officer. So that to me, in terms of policing and even the work I do now, a lot of our role is to start having that conversation about our connection to community and how we with other departments or other community groups actually make positive impacts on our community because that's what we're here for. In your role with the police, you, you went up through the ranks and you, you eventually got to the level of assistant commissioner uh, with the, the police sector. And in that role, and, and even now in your role as the commissioner for the Queensland Fire and Emergency Service, one of the key interest areas that you've had has been diversity and inclusion. Why do you think that is so important? And that might sound like a rhetorical question because we know it is very much a very male-dominated kind of area. But what was it about that that you felt that you needed to have a voice and, and how important has that been? I think it's extraordinarily important. And it wasn't probably until about seven, eight years ago that I was doing a master's with Australian New Zealand School of Government. And interestingly, our topic were for barriers, barriers for women to get to senior positions, but it was in the Department of Education in Victoria. And when they told me the statistics, you know, they have about 70, 80% of women join at the lower level and only 38% get to senior executive. 
And I thought, you think you have a problem? Because at that stage, I was in the senior executive police and there was only 4%. I'm thinking, we have got the problem, not you. (laughs) But interestingly, um, it switches dramatically. So even in education and health, where you have a lot of women coming through the front doors, at the lower level, you have very few um, end up at senior executive. It flips in the middle of women's career and that's normally when women leave to have children. So that's the greatest impact time. However, you can't influence policy or significant outcomes if you're sitting at the lower end of an organisation. So it really is important for women to make it through the middle management and senior management, but also to have that balance in conversation, balance in what, you know, needs to be done for community or for the organisation. So it is really important in whatever occupation that we're in is to always think about, you know, having that balance because at the end of the day, you know, it is reflective. We need to be reflective of the community. There are some occupations and which find it a lot more difficult to attract women. And I would say firefighting is one of those, predominantly, um, you know, male-orientated organisation. Female firefighters have only been around for 24 years in Queensland. You mentioned that before we were off mic. That's That just blows my mind. It is incredible, isn't it, to think so that... So up that... until before 24 years ago, there were no female That's firefighters correct. in Queensland. Yes. Wow. And only 54 years for female police police. So we're not talking about a long period of time. So I think some, and there's about 30% of women now in Queensland Police Service and there's in women firefighters, there's only about 5 6% in my organisation. So it is a struggle to initially attract uh, women to apply for our, that role and then obviously to get them through the requirements, particularly around the physical component of the role and then to maintain it is an extraordinary occupation. Uh, I encourage women, I'm always recruiting wherever I am, <laughs> be it with ambulance officers or police officers or wherever I go, because uh, I think for the health of the organisation, really, it, there is clear evidence there that if you get that balance right, it's a more productive organisation, it's healthier, it's more engaged. Women bring a different mix, leadership styles, the way they converse, you name it, all of it. To be well-balanced and healthy, you need to have that right mix. Obviously, one of the things you've been able to do is both in the police sector and then now in the the, um, Queensland Fire and Emergency Sector is to actually get through those barriers and, and get into a leadership role yourself. What do you see as some of the barriers for maybe other women coming up through the ranks, having to change those percentages, um, even to, you know, increase them just a little bit. What are some of the barriers that we need to change? To get through that middle management into senior management, um, particularly women who are carers and who leave to have children or have to care for elderly parents, a lot of that happens in those years when you're about to go to middle management. You know, women's having children in late, 30, late sorry, 20s, early 30s. But that's also the time where you, you start getting promoted to those positions. So if you're out of the workforce for a period of time, you will miss out on opportunities. You will miss out on those courses that are coming. You will miss out on how technology changes. You know, Things change so quickly. So if you're out of the workforce just a year, things would have dramatically changed. So I I say to women that you need to think 
if you're going to have children, how long you will take off, whether you can come back in a part-time capacity, but some agencies are more supportive of that than others. And you need to put like almost a network around yourself. I did only take six months off with each of my children. I got everyone to help me. My partner, my mother, my mother-in-law, the daycare centre, my neighbours, au pairs, you name it. I think I'm up to my 12th au pair over the last 10 years. And, you know, that might come at great expense, but I think you need to plan with your partner or sit down with someone as to how you're going to do this and put some thought into it. Because before you know it, a a year or two will pass and you may have missed a number of opportunities in that journey. So really put some thought into it. Think about what those barriers are going to be. Um, Do you have to travel in your job? If you can't travel, how are you going to deal with that situation if it's a part of your job? Do you stay operational or do you go to an administrative role, which may impact you down the track? Because a lot of women tend to go to an administrative role in operational environments. So all of these things really need to be well thought of and Go to someone to get advice. Go to someone senior who's done it and been there before. Get a mentor. Have the discussion. I love that because it's it's that space to actually stop and think and where do I want to go? But it also comes from a place of possibility that absolutely it's possible that I could step into a senior leadership role. So what do I need to make that happen rather than it will or it won't? And I think your point around the administration versus operational is really, really key as well. There's a lot of statistics, even at senior executive levels across a whole range of different organisations. Women, even at those levels, are often in those administrative type roles, whether it's HR kind of functions or organisational development functions, which are really critical. Unfortunately, they're, they're also not often the ones that are seen as strategic decision-making roles as opposed to a CFO-type position at a senior-level executive. So thinking operationally as well as administratively is really important. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. You know, if you're now planning on having a child and you're in an operational, you know, organisation, I think you need to think about that. You know, where do I need to be in four or five years' time? Where do I want to be? But do I need to maintain an operational focus or will I give that away and go to an administrative area? Then it may be hard to go back to that. But, you know, I, I often remember, I, I've, you know, everyone's missed out on opportunities. And I remember when I was quite a senior person acting, I wanted to act up in a higher role and the assistant commissioner back then gave it away to someone else. In fact, brought someone out of the region for 18-month period. And I went to my mentor, not happy about this decision because how did he overlook me and my fellow inspectors? We could have all done this job. And I remember him clearly saying, well, Katerina, either you do something about it or you just get on with it. And I thought, that's that's so right. You've got to be responsible for making your own path sometimes. So I, I approached the assistant commissioner and the first thing he said to me was, I didn't think you were interested. You've got two young kids. So... You just presume, you know, he's made this decision because he doesn't want you, but he made the decision thinking I wasn't interested. And until I had that conversation, he would have been none the wiser. So guess what happened next time? I got the relieving opportunity. So I think you've got to be responsible for making your own path as well as, you know, depending on others, you know, what they know of you. 
stop and ask for it. And it's possible he felt like he was doing the best thing for you by not giving you the role. You know, he did because he had a wife um, who was at home looking after their four children. So he presumed that that was me as well. So in fairness to him, you know, he, he didn't know any different. And after that conversation, it was fine. So I think sometimes pluck up that courage, have the conversation, but definitely don't sit there and stew on it like some of us have done in the past. Have the discussion with someone and they will, they will more often than not give you good advice. There is some research around, I'd love to get your take on it, that says that women are hesitant to apply for a senior level role until they know they meet 100% of the criteria and men are much more likely to apply for it, even if they only meet 50% of it and they'll have a crack at the rest of it. Has that been your experience and have you applied for jobs even well before you're ready or potentially even qualified? That research is definitely out there. (laughs) And in fact, I knew of that research some 10, 15 years ago. So I thought I've got to ignore the research and just apply for roles. But I was a bit that way. I know that when I was a superintendent in Cairns, I, I I wanted this superintendent's role, but I knew that I had to fulfil all this criteria around disaster management. So I studied for years so I can tick every little piece of criteria. Thankfully, I did. But it is correct. And I even see it now when people apply for senior roles in my organisation, there will be uh, out of 90 people that apply, 88 men will apply and two women. And they, those two women feel as though they've got to tick everything, whereas a lot of the men don't fulfil the criteria. That's fine. Um, but I think women need to put themselves out there a little bit more and have a go. I've even been to women and say, you need to apply for this position. And they go, well, no, I don't think I've got it. And and I go, yes, you have. Believe me, you need to apply for this position. How important do you think that is to that, you know, senior level leaders are actually then encouraging those below them to say, apply for it, put your your hand up and see if you and go from there. And if you don't get it, you'll learn from that. So you'll always learn. I think we have a responsibility. I definitely have a responsibility as a senior woman to encourage young women and to, I think there was a terminology, pull them up. And, you know, because I've been there. We've all been there. It's extraordinarily important that once you get to a position of a leadership that you assist others as well because you know you know what the journey was like. And if you can make it a little bit easier or offer a little bit of advice, it's the right thing to do. I want to change tact a little bit. One of the things you're leading the charge on in across QFES at the moment is this transformational change around how we, we turn up. And transformational change is not unusual. There's probably plenty of people listening who work in organisations who are going through massive change. They're trying to figure out where how they operate in this kind of new world that is moving very, very fast. How important is it um, for leaders to believe that, that change is, is necessary and how do you drive that change? So, as you said, there is a lot of transformational change going on within QFES, has been for the last three, four years and will continue to be for the next few years. We've tried to change the conversation about transformational change into continuously improve or evolving because whichever way you look at it, it's not going to stop. If I was to leave and someone else took over, Uh, It doesn't matter. It is happening that quickly that it's constantly going to occur. So we're trying to change the language a little bit. But 
it really is leadership at every level, not just individual leadership, but collective leadership. And and you may have had a little bit to do with our organisation, so you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, if we're going to talk about change and we're doing all of these things in QFES, I expect that the senior leadership team undergoes anything every level of the organisation has to undergo, be it development or training or some of the programs that we're doing. So not only do we set the example, but we're actually part of that conversation. So leadership to me is pretty well everything. It comes down to leadership um, at the highest level, right through senior management into middle management, which for me is the most important leadership level. Why do I say that? That group influences the greatest number of people in the department, in any department. So if you can get that, I suppose, that leadership, that management, that engagement right at that level, I think you have a very successful department. Part of the role of leadership is putting audacious goals out there and and really encouraging other people to come along. When you put yourself out there and even when you're in a leadership role and there may be um, people listening, there may be women listening going, okay, I'm going to apply for that leadership role, what can happen is critique and criticism comes with it. People will want to cut it down or um, judge that along the way. How have you personally dealt with with that? It, it's happened over the years, definitely. You know, I and other female leaders, I know when I've applied job, for jobs in the past, I was told actually they had to fill a criteria, you know, a certain amount of women had to get this job and you're one of them. I've had that said to me. I think you get more resilient the more that's said to you and you think, oh, well, I'm going to go for it because really I'm passionate and positive about the role and my organisation if I don't get it, I don't get it. I'll learn from that and I'll apply for something else. I'm past the stage. I used to be quite affected by about people saying that to me when I genuinely wanted to apply for all the right reasons. And then for someone to have you, you know, say those awful things to you and you go back and rethink, oh, why am I actually applying for this? But if you're really passionate about your job and positive about your organisation and what you're trying to achieve for the community. And if you really believe that if I get to that position, I can make these positive changes and, you know, I'm going to do this, this and this, you should go for it. And don't, don't worry about the knockers because will they ever go away? They, I don't think they will ever go away. So be true to yourself and, you know, it hasn't been an easy road. Of course, it's been a tough road. But I think anyone in a leadership position across the world will all tell you it's been a tough road. I think you've got to accept that and do it for all the right reasons. I agree. And I think it's not always even a gender thing. I think it's just putting yourself out there. The critique and criticism will come. It's not proof not to do it. In fact, sometimes that's proof that gets you clearer on the things that, that really matter. Yeah, it does. You know, I remember when I first came into the current role, some of the things were, were said and done to me, and I won't go over them, but they had a real profound effect on me back then. And I look back and I think about everything we have achieved in the last three and a half years. If they, if that same things were done to me now, oh, I wouldn't, wouldn't even concern me. I'd move, I'd move on a lot quicker. 
And I think you learn that along the way. So my advice is if you're true to yourself and you're doing things for the right reasons, for the good of your department and for the good of the people that you serve, you know, what is anyone going to do to you? Like it's everything is for the right reason. One of the terminologies we're hearing in workplaces at the moment is around engagement, employee engagement. And you talked before about that middle layer and how powerful and critical they are because they have an impact on the, on the greatest number of any department. What does engagement look like? Engagement to me is genuinely knowing the people that work for you and around you. And I studied a lot on engage, uh, about engagement years ago when I was in policing. We did a lot of internal surveys to judge, I suppose, to look at our culture and our engagement. And one of the, the things that stood out, you know, people don't necessarily leave organisations because they're going for a better pay or, you know, better conditions. They leave because the people around them and a lot of times their managers and leaders don't treat them well. True engagement is genuinely knowing your people and being to have have a genuine discussion with them. And and that may be that, you know, on a Monday morning you walk back in, you actually say to your staff, oh, how did so-and-so go in soccer or did your daughter get up in this? Getting to know your people and to have that trust, even though you might be in a leadership role, that's what true engagement is about. And it's then, once you develop that, that you can start having, you know, the uncomfortable conversation about where the organisation's headed and why and genuinely start having that, you know, discussion with your people. That's true engagement. Not being walking in and saying, oh, the boss says we're changing and this is this is what you've got to do. It's actually being able to sit down with your people and have the conversation as to why. And it's something we all know how to do. We know how to sit and ask someone how their weekend is and yet it doesn't always happen. What do you think gets in the way of that? I think some people are naturally better at it. As some people have to work um, at it. And I, I see it in my organisation. I can see who the true leaders are and who can genuinely engage and others who struggle with it. And However, as a leader, though, as a leader, you should be genuinely engaging. And if you don't have that skill or you struggle in that skill, you need to develop to get better at that. And this sometimes is borne out in 360 surveys that I have my senior executive and managers do. And if you see a weakness in that, particularly around engaging and leading your people, you have you have a responsibility to actually get better at it because you are in a key leadership role and that's what you should be doing. But I think in any organisation, you are always going to get those that are naturally good at it and those that will struggle, but certainly in a leadership role should be developing to get better. And often that just comes with the willingness to to practice, to to be interested in, to be interested in getting that feedback. Yeah. To, you know, I've had people who have given not so good feedback to about their engagement, about their leadership. And some have taken it on the chin and went and did something about it and others still can't see past, you know, what they've done. So they're, they're choices that people make. And if you, I think if you make the right choices and you're willing to learn that you will, you will go further in organisations. Touching on choices, I'd, I'd love to unpack with you 
around decision making and leadership because it's one of those things that we wish we could have certainty around that if I make this decision, it will absolutely work out. There's guaranteed. But nothing's guaranteed when you're dealing with people and when you're dealing with organisations. Now, you work in an industry where you you actually have to make some emergency-based decisions. So, we're dealing with critical crises that have an impact on people's lives and homes where you've got to make that kind of emergency-type decisions. But then you also need to make strategic decisions. What's your take on leadership decisions? How do you approach those? How do you come? When do you ask for people's input and when do you just make the call? They're tough. (laughs) (laughs) Just a small question for you. (laughs) Uh, The decisions in leadership roles, and you are so correct, every one of them every day is very different. And I'll give you an example, just the fires in the last two weeks. There was some, I got a brief from our Bureau of Meteorology who came in and said, Katarina, we have to have this tough discussion about the fact that, you know, the the fire danger rating is getting to catastrophic levels. And we've never had that in Queensland. In other states where this has happened, that will trigger certain actions. But because it's never happened in Queensland, what are we going to do about it? And we even had the conversation quickly about, do we even put this out there yet because it hadn't gone to catastrophic and all wasn't, you know, we were guaranteed that it was going to. But we made a quick decision that, yes, we've got to let the public know that this is what we're seeing. And within two hours, it had already turned to catastrophic, particularly in central Queensland. On top of that, the modelling from our uh, predictive services showed me that the impending fire was coming over Gracemere and that we had to make split-second decisions to evacuate uh, 10,000 people. They're tough decisions, but you can clear, you, you've only got a short amount of time to make those decisions as well. With the information you've got around you, you make the decisions and as a result, Thankfully, uh, with all of the additional resources that we have, particularly the the large air tankers, we were able to stop that fire and save that town. On the other side, though, I have a more leisurely role in making... I love that you use the word leisurely. (laughs) Well, when you compare it to that decision, decisions about your strategic future, you can consult and collaborate. Uh, You have time to look at the evidence and the research and all of that. So you can shore up those decisions uh, backed by a lot more information and input from others. So the other, the emergency service, you know, the emergency decision, that definitely comes from history as well. But they, those decisions have to be made a split second, whereas those, uh, the strategic decisions, you have a little bit more time to make those decisions. I think one of the toughest roles for a leader is having to make those really tough decisions. Because whichever way you look at it, I look at that decision two weeks ago, if things didn't go according to plan, you know immediately that you're going to be in a royal commission to be held to account as to why you made that decision at that time. So decision-making to me has always been, have I got the evidence, the research? What are my thoughts at the time of making the decision? What what information do I have at hand? So that's always operating in my mind. Like I said, in some times um, I have time to make those decisions and, and other times I don't. In G20, uh, every year, every every decision I made for two years, I notated why I made that decision 
and uh, what my thinking was at the time and what evidence I had at the time, not only through the planning phase, but also the operational phase. I think you can get very good at making decisions, uh, but you've got to put a lot of thought re- uh, behind why you make the decisions. Do you think that comes with time and, and um, I guess, having done the work, I guess, experience around that? I get, you know, there is some research that says you've got to do the 10,000 hours to become a master and then you can make those gut decisions because you've done the work to know that you can trust your gut instinct. And up until then, you need to have a more um, logical framework in order to make a decision. Definitely, definitely. The experience the knowledge, the years in a certain, you know, environment, that policing, you know, emergency background, you, there is this gut on top of everything you know and everything you've done. There is gut feel that you need to do this. And, you know, one of those decisions sat around bringing staff and equipment from interstate very early, long before the fires hit, because you knew all of everything was in front of you, but you knew that this was going to turn worse than we've ever seen it before. So you have this gut instinct on top of everything you know to make that decision. And more often than that, it holds you that decision holds you in good stead. Did you have a debate at all? Like I love your example of even the last couple of weeks. Was there even a part of you that kind of went, maybe this is a bit over the top? Like maybe what if the winds die down and it ends up nothing and I've got all these resources up there? Was there ever that debate? Um, no, because I'm always um, comfortable in always t- making decisions on the worst case scenario because uh, I have the information in front of you. The worst case scenario tells me this and I'm going to make that decision. I'd rather that and be criticised for bringing in too many resources than on the flip side having one of the worst catastrophes in our history. Mm. And I think that comes with experience as well because sometimes... I think if I was more junior, less experienced, I'd be thinking, oh, my God, I'll get criticised if I get this wrong. I'm more comfortable being criticised these days. For what's, you know, to making a call to what's right. That's correct. Yeah, 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 that's that's really powerful. In your, and this probably ties into what you've just said in terms of kind of growth and your own comfortability and your own leadership, how have you combated, I guess, the doubts and fears that can come with being in a leadership role? I think you're always going to have some doubts and fears. And I, in the past, I used to think, oh, really? All those leaders, I'm sure they don't have any doubts. They know what they're doing. <laughs> they know they what don't. they're doing. <laughs> but, you know, I sometimes think that's not a bad thing. Uh, I think you really, the fact that you have those doubts and fears, it makes you be a little bit more comprehensive and you know, double check yourself or, you know, go to a peer and, you know, check in with them. I think it stops you from being overly arrogant about your leadership role and your decisions. So I do, you know, I will go to peers and say, look, I've been thinking this, you know, especially people who've been in a very, very similar situation where I can afford the time to, you know, to do that. I think second guessing yourself is not a bad thing because it makes you think about the world very differently and you will not just depend on your own self to make those key decisions. So I don't mind it's having okay. a Yeah, it's yeah. okay. It's okay to have a bit of self doubt. Yeah. Have you had mentors along the way? I've always had mentors um, in a formal as well as an informal sense. 
I kind of fell into that. I never thought years ago that I need this mentor and this is what I've got to do. It, it kind of just took place. And uh, my mentors have been quite frank with me, which I think a mentor should That's be. That's when you know they're a good one. <laughs> yes, they tell you what you need to yeah, hear, not what you, you want just, to hear. Yeah, yeah. you feel like saying, I didn't really want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's what a mentor's role is. And more so um, in even a peer check-in, I've had people say, Katerina, have you really thought about doing this, this and this rather than this? Because when you do it this way, and I think, well, I've never really thought about it. But that's that's exactly why you need them because they look at you um, honestly and frankly and give you that honest and frank feedback. Your role is is huge and you described even only in the last couple of weeks having to make some big calls and you, and calls that can have an impact on, you talked about a, a town with 10,000 people, but also your, your covering across the state of, of Queensland. How do you personally manage your own energy in order to be able to continue to turn up um, in a way to be engaged to the people around you and to be able to make the decisions you need to make? I think we've got to be quite frank that through those difficult times, be it a cyclone or through the fires last week, it not only myself, uh, but Bob G, who was the state disaster coordinator, and all our staff, we're exhausted. You know, you have 12 days that were just relentless. So from the front line to ourselves and even the Premier of the state, you get very little sleep and you are exhausted. But you take time out, which I did on the weekend where I had nothing in my diary and you hang out with family and you work around the house and you have the conversation with your family and your husband and it's enough to refuel things and you go back to what is your normal, you know, everyday life and your what you do in your organisation. I think as a leader... Um, everyone expects you to do that and you know that's a part of leadership, that it's going to be tough. You refresh and you get back into it. And then every so often you get a bit of a break. You'll take a week or so off and refresh and you get back into it. My children play a lot of sports. Um, Do I take time out and leisurely read a novel? No, I don't. (laughs) I think my leisure time is running after my children's sport. (laughs) You know, my son's on a Sri Lankan cricket tour and I get joy out of talking to him and finding out how he goes, how he's going over there. Same with my daughter when she's playing tennis. So that's my chapter in my life at the moment. So I think there's many ways that you can refresh and re-energise and certainly... um, that, that's me at the moment. I'm sure that when they get older and I'm not running around after them that I'll be taking a leisurely river, river cruise somewhere or something like that. But certainly I think it's important to know that when you're running out of energy that you need to do something because people look to me to be positive, to be passionate, to promote QFES, um, to be out there, you know, mixing with those that we need to in the community, across government. That's my role. But uh, also, it's a role to know that when I need to take a bit of a refresh uh, to re-energise. It's okay to do that. It's, <laughs> it's okay important to do that. <laughs> One of the things that, um, I mean, you've been recognised over the last couple of years. In 2015, you were awarded the Telstra Business Women's Award for both government and academia. You're also on the AFR and Westpac uh, 100 Women of Influence list. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) But I want to talk about the importance of recognition. I think also, and I'm going to stereotype here, but I think for women it can be harder to do. We often downplay what we do. We just get on with the work and it can be hard to put yourself out there. We often want to 
lift someone else up, but to actually be the one that's in the spotlight, even just for a period of time, um, can be hard. But it's also really important, I think, to be a role model uh, and for other women to kind of see, particularly in your industry when the statistics are so low, mm. to actually see someone stand and have a voice in that space. How did you navigate those that, that recognition and I guess the recognition that continues for you? You know, I don't know who said it, but I picked it up somewhere recently. You cannot be what you cannot see. And I think it is incredibly important for women to be recognised and, and take it as an honour to be recognised and say, well, actually, it's not a bad thing. But for other women to be able to see that and also say, well, I'm going to have a go as, as well. And we should be nominating each other, you know, to achieve these great things. I think in the beginning, you're almost a little bit, when you're younger, a little bit more less experienced, you're almost a bit embarrassed that you might, you know, get this award and you might have to stand up in front of people and say something. I remember I used to be, I'd just rather do my work. Can you just leave me alone? I just want to do my work. <laughs> uh, but I think it is in- extraordinarily important that if you do achieve good things, it feels good to be rewarded because you've worked hard and you achieving certain things for your community and for your organisation and I think it's right to be uh, rewarded and for other people to see that. You know, again, I go back to engagement and productivity in the workplace. One of the biggest things that people want in their workplace is just to be re- rewarded with a thank you for what they do. So I think, you know, to reward someone for what they've done and achieved is the right thing to do. And I think women should be doing more of it and that we should be nominating each other for, you know, I got nominated for those, um, obviously, two awards. And then you go through a process of having to answer a whole heap of questions yourself. And it was actually a tough gig, you know, many hours of work just to answer <laughs> the questions. But it was almost cathartic because you sit there and you kind of review your own life and you think, wow, you know, I, yeah, I did do that and I have done that. And you almost feel rather proud of yourself at the end of it. So I think it is a, it's a great exercise. Women should be recognised. Uh, they should appreciate others that have been recognised. And don't be afraid of putting yourself out there. It might take a little while to get used to it, but certainly, um, you know, it's almost, it's not being arrogant about it. It's just being a little bit selfish about the fact that, yeah, okay, I've achieved something. That's and a good thing. I love that because it does, sometimes it's the power of the pause to actually stop and unpack it, whether it's through an application process to actually go, okay, there is this, this and this. And, and sometimes where we don't is because we go, but I'm not finished yet or I've got more to do or I don't feel like I've, like I've achieved this much, but I've still got, you know, someone else is doing a million things. So yeah. it's comparison can kick into gear. But I think it's really important to still pause, even yeah. if there's work to do. I think the power of the pause is spot on. It's just to take some time out and think, wow, you know, I have achieved this. Yeah, I might want to go there, but it doesn't look bad at this stage. It's pretty good. And yes, I need to be doing this and this is where I want to go. But sit back and reflect because you're right, we rarely ever do that because we're just going, going, going. Sit back and reflect and be genuinely proud of the things that you've done because, you know, I mightn't have many women in the firefighting ranks, but across the department I do... And there are some amazing women achieving amazing things. 
and and I don't think they see it sometimes. I see it because I sit above and watch and I know who the talent is. You always do in your organisation. And I don't even think they realise how amazing they are, but they, they pretty well, they are amazing women. What's exciting you about what's next? Probably the best part about what's next is you don't know what's next sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the abyss of unknown. I love it. The abyss of the unknown is not a bad thing. But I do know straight away talking to you here that I have an emerging weather event in the yeah. far north. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, I always, I have always been a bit of a planner for the future. Uh, I'm always either developing or studying or looking to the next thing. But sometimes I think you shouldn't be too structured in that because you might miss the opportunities that come your way. But, you know, I have two years left in my contract and you get some weird things come out of the left field, some offers that you think, oh, I've never really thought about that. But, you know, in the next two years, I might give it some thought. But I have this amazing department with amazing people who are there for the right reasons. You know, they're all about serving the community. And when, when you do that as a group of people, I think... Whatever comes next is you're in a pretty pretty good place. You know you're going to be doing the unknown together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's spot on. You know that together uh, we will stand up uh, and take care of our community. I want to come full circle. So the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what comes to mind for you? What what does it take to live a standout life? That you ha- are happy with how you've contributed in your way in your way, to make the world and your community a better place because I think that's what we should be doing. That's exactly what... That's what I tell my children to do, that in some way that you should... You know, my son is over in Sri Lanka at the moment on a cricket tour, but part of his cricket tour is also... It's called a service and cricket tour where they go into community and work with the poor and, and hand things over and, you know, play cricket with them. That's what it's about. I think many of us, um, particularly in my role, have a responsibility to stand out and make it better for others. I'm signing up for that. That sounds like a good plan. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. It's been such a delight to chat with you. Thank you. It's been completely enjoyable to have this discussion (laughs) with you. Thanks. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.